Hi folks, Neil here. We want to help answer all your questions about Rome. That's why you can listen to this episode in the Circa app for iPhone and get all the show notes, pictures, maps, and links you need to find everything we tell you about in this Rome guide. Best of all, in the Circa app, you can message a Circa concierge and you can get any question about Rome answered by real people right here. The best way to visit the Colosseum, how to get around, where to find an absolutely beautiful carbonara. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, no AI ever. And for a limited time, it's completely free. The Circa Travel app is available in the App Store right now or at circatravel.com. Hi everyone, my name's Neil Innes. I'm one of the folks at Circa in charge of all of the amazing travel guides we're launching this summer. And I also host the Circa Guide to Barcelona from this beautiful city on the Mediterranean. We'd like to invite you to download the Circa app for iOS for free. It's out right now in the App Store. Inside the Circa app, you'll find maps and info on all the places we recommend, plus bonus episodes and early access to all of the other guides. Go to circatravel.com or click the link in the notes. Right now, you'll be able to listen to Circa Guide episodes about London, Barcelona, Los Angeles, Rome, and Iceland. And coming soon, Paris, Mexico City, Hawaii, Costa Rica, and more. Once more, that's circatravel.com, spelled C-E-R-C-A travel.com. I'll see you there. Welcome to Circa. This is an episode about the smallest country in the world, the Vatican. Sure, you can see a large part of the country on a single day's tour, but it can be quite overwhelming. So we are here to help you do the Vatican, Roman style, meaning without the headaches. The history of these walls speaks of wealth, power, abuse, and pure and utter beauty. And so, with that in mind, we're going to tell you a lot. But don't worry, there will be maps, notes, and info on the places mentioned in these guides in the Circa app, as well as all the other full guide episodes to this wonderful city. So just sit back, put your headphones on, and enjoy the ride. Let's get some religion. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. When you come to Rome, one of the first things you'll notice is a sound. I don't hear it much anymore. It's our breathing, the shuttering of our eyelids, the moving of our necks. And if it were to stop, then the silence would be deafening. Church bells. It's a musical whose residency never expires, a symphony of alternating sounds and pitches that echo through the streets and lets people know exactly where they are. Religion here reigns supreme. The Vatican is just around the corner. St. Peter's Square. From a bird's eye view, St. Peter's Square looks as though God put his hands through the city's buildings and pushed them aside to make space for this 240 square meter piazza. In fact, St. Peter's Square was designed with these massive rows of columns, one on each side of the oblong piazza, to symbolize arms embracing and holding the Christian pilgrims to the Vatican. The weight and energy of the Vatican in Rome is immediately palpable. This piazza can hold up to 300,000 people, and it is one of the biggest in the world. It is the original home of the cobblestones, San Pietrini. I like to stand right in the middle of it, on an early morning, when there aren't many people, 
and just absorb the view. You can feel very, very small in this piazza. This queen of squares is perhaps the most monumental in the world, an architectural masterpiece and one of the greatest examples of Baroque Rome. It is the masterpiece of the designer Bernini, who created it between 1656 and 1667, with the aim of giving worthy, and may I say dramatically beautiful, access to the greatest example of Christianity. St. Peter's Basilica. Most of the Vatican City exists behind walls with limited access, but St. Peter's Square is open to all. The story of the Vatican begins as many Roman things, with a fire. The Vatican Hill used to be a Roman necropolis, an elaborate cemetery in ancient times. But a great fire leveled much of Rome in 64 AD. Emperor Nero, seeking to shift blame from himself, accused the Christians of starting the blaze. He executed them the Roman way, by burning them at the stake, tearing them apart with wild beasts and crucifying them. Among those crucified was St. Peter, disciple of Jesus Christ, who was then apparently buried in a shallow grave on the Vatican Hill. It is believed that his grave is right under the square. More than 300 years later, when the Christian religion was officially recognized, Emperor Constantine began the construction of the original basilica atop the ancient burial ground, with what was believed to be the tomb of St. Peter at its center. The black cobblestones, contrasting the intricate Baroque work of Bernini's archways and the splendor of St. Peter's Basilica, might just make you forget about the savage ways of the Romans. By Roman law, no building in central Rome can be taller than the St. Peter's Basilica. You are the Almighty, St. Peter's Basilica. The dome shines majestically above the rooftops of the city. To enter here, you will have to queue. It is free, like every other church in Rome. The meticulousness of the details inside the dome feels even more impressive on a 30-meter-high ceiling. Everything is covered in either marble, gold, or both. The design was begun by Michelangelo and continued by Giacomo della Porta. Carlo Maderno then finished the dome in 1614. This dome has actually inspired many other cathedrals and buildings, including the Capitol Building in Washington, D.C. You will see the resemblance next time you see it on the news. The Pope delivers most of his speeches from the papal window on Wednesday mornings. Not even a particularly fancy window, it's actually just a window overlooking the square. If this isn't what you came for, then this is a great time to visit the Vatican Museums, as it will be slightly less crowded. At the center of the square is one of the 13 obelisks of Rome. This 30-meter block of granite, brought here in the year 40 by Emperor Caligula, was actually transported all the way from Egypt. The square is surrounded by marble columns which form a semicircle around it. If you're looking from one side towards the column, they'll appear lined up perfectly. So it looks like one row of columns instead of a row of three or four. This is one of the many visual tricks that you can do in the Vatican. where the Vatican begins. Encircled by a two-mile border with Italy, Vatican City is an independent city-state that covers just 100 acres, about one-eighth of New York's Central Park. It is the smallest country in the world and arguably one of the richest. The city is governed by an absolute monarchy with the Pope at its head. It has its own euros, stamps and license plates also its own radio and TV station, its own flag and national anthem. One government function it lacks? Taxation. 
museum admission fees, stamps and souvenir sales, and the millions of donations gathered in churches around the world generate most of the Vatican's revenue. Plus the immense wealth of the church's real estate holdings around Italy and the world. Whilst most of the Vatican is as ancient as Rome, it wasn't always its own self-governing state. Before Italy came together as a unified country in 1870, the Catholic Church used to rule over a collection of sovereign papal states throughout central Italy. But after 1870, the new government seized all of the land of the papal states except for the small patch of land on the hill in Rome that was the Vatican. From then on, popes refused to recognize the authority of the Kingdom of Italy, and the Vatican remained beyond Italian national control. Pope Pius IX proclaimed himself a prisoner of the Vatican, and for almost 60 years, popes refused to leave the Vatican and submit to the authority of the Italian government. When Italian troops were present in St. Peter's Square, popes even refused to give blessings or appear from the balcony overlooking the public space. So petty. It was like a cold war between Italy and the Vatican. In 1929, the Lateran Pact signed between Benito Mussolini and the Papal States finally recognized the Vatican as an independent state. Since St. Peter, who is considered the first pope, there have been more than 260 popes. Among these, 82 have been proclaimed saints, and some as antipopes. Yep, antipopes. These were rival claimants of the papal throne who were appointed or elected in opposition to the legitimate pope. By some estimates, there have been around 40 anti-popes throughout history. Most popes have been Italian. All of them, of course, have been men. At the gates to the Vatican, you'll see soldiers in Renaissance-style blue, red, orange and yellow uniforms. These are the Swiss Guard, one of the oldest military units still operating today. The Guard was established in the early 1500s and was initially a combat unit composed of Swiss mercenaries, hence the name. They have protected the Pope and the Vatican ever since. You can't actually visit Vatican City. It is not open to tourists. But you can get a view of the Vatican Gardens. But more on this later. If there is one thing Pope Francis misses from his pre-poping days, it's pizza. He has complained about this on various interviews. I miss going to the restaurant and eating a nice pizza as I relax. He definitely has the whole Dolce Vita lifestyle on point. Apparently, a few days after he was nominated, Pope Francis took his Fiat Panda without telling any of the Swiss guards and went into Rome to get pizza. He didn't know the rules back then, and he has not done that ever since. The Papal Nobility Before the Montagues and the Capulets, there were the Orsini and the Ludovisi. No one does rich families like the papal nobility. The story of the Vatican has always been tightly intertwined with some of the richest families in Italy. Many popes throughout history came from incredibly wealthy aristocratic Italian families, and Rome was the epicenter of Italian high society. The symbols of these elite families can be seen everywhere in Rome, on fountains, on buildings, on museum roofs, on paintings, Look for, for example, birds and bees. Before Italy was unified, the Papal States owned a lot of land and wealth. The Papal nobility is the aristocracy of the Holy See. A number of pontifical titles and individual honors were granted over the centuries by Papal States. These included princes, dukes, marquises, counts and barons who were often in the service of the Papal court or state. In the 15th century, there were two great factions. On one side were the Orsini, the Cesarini, the Borghese, the Aldobrandini, the Ludovisi, and the Pamfili. Opposite them were the Colonna and the Barberini. 
Imagine the Romeos and Juliets here. These families still exist, and they still own majestic castles and villas along the outskirts of Rome. You can visit some, like the Villa di Caprarola in Viterbo, about an hour's drive from the city center. This is the papal version of the Pentagon, and it belonged to the Farnese family. The inner courtyard will take your breath away, even before you enter the rooms that are filled with frescoes, each unique to every room. The outside garden has a small mouth of truth, where the rainwater would collect. All of this set with the backdrop of the Roman countryside. Beautiful. Most of these families don't live in these villas anymore. That would be utterly impractical. Picture two kilometers squared homes with dozens of rooms, long corridors, and stalls for horses. Imagine shouting to your kids that dinner is ready. You might need a megaphone. But one family does still live in one of these Renaissance villas. The Aldo Brandini Villa in Frascati, a 40-minute drive from Rome, is a stunning 16th-century peach-yellow mansion overlooking vineyards and olive trees. It is the only papal garden that is not owned by the state. Pope Clement VIII, who once owned the house, actually gave it to his nephew Cardinal Pietro Lobrandini in 1598. His gift ensured the property remained in the family, because popes are not allowed to own property. You cannot visit the villa, but it is sometimes booked for weddings and events. This service is, however, not public, and they are quite exclusive about who they let do events there. Lady Diana's niece, for example, got married there. A trip to Frascati is a lovely day out of Rome. Get lost in the streets of the small town and eat some of the most authentic Roman food. Taverna dello Spuntino offers some hearty Roman dishes. This tavern has what appears to be giant grapes hanging from the ceilings, but they're actually lamps made of flasks, along with some hams which also hang from the ceiling. They have what we call mountain food, meaning a bit heartier. Try their homemade pasta with cavolonero, sausage and dried peppers. Ask for their house wine to experience the Frascati wine famous in our region for getting you really drunk, really quickly. The Vatican Museums. The Vatican Museums have more than 1,000 rooms and around 70,000 works of art, of which only 20,000 are on show. They are called museums, but they are essentially a series of rooms that are all connected. So, as you move from one room to the next, you are moving into a new museum, although you won't exactly realize that when you're walking through. You will typically follow a path that everyone else follows. Imagine it just like a huge museum with different art galleries. If you were to visit all the rooms, you would probably need more than two days. So be selective. We'll tell you about some of them in a minute. The Vatican Museums are an endeavor and it can be exhausting. So here are a few good tips. One, take the whole day for it and don't try to do the Vatican and something else on the same day. Two, bring water and small snacks which you can eat in the outside areas. There is a restaurant and a cafe, but honestly, the food is not that great and it's quite expensive. I would skip it. Three, if you don't get a tour guide, an audio guide is definitely necessary. Prepare to enter a visual feast of colors, images, mythological stories and secret passageways. Four, if I could give you one piece of advice that is both practical and pleasurable, it would be this. If you want to book a massage during your stay in the Eternal City, do it after your Vatican visit. You will be looking down at mosaics, up at frescoes, left and right at paintings. You will need one. If you decide to brave the museums alone, book your ticket in advance on the Vatican official website. They are around 21 euros for adults and 12 euros for seniors and children. 
They sell out quickly. Millions of people flock in and out of these walls every year, so it can be a little crowded. A guide will help a lot. They know the ins and outs of this golden marble labyrinth and can entertain you and your little ones with fun facts and anecdotes as you go through. Check the notes in the Circa app for a link to a great tour guide to the Vatican Museums. There are roughly 70,000 works in the museum's collection, of which 20,000 are on display. Think Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Giotto Bernini, but also Dalí, Picasso, Francis Bacon. There is also a carriage museum where you can see the Harley Davidson that belongs to Pope Francis, though he never rode it. After his cheeky pizza escape, he is under constant watch by the Swiss Guard. After going through security, you enter the museum and you will see that everyone will go left. Here's our secret. Go right. The Pinacoteca Museum, meaning the Museum of Pictures, is a treasure trove of masterworks from Giotto to Michelangelo to Raffaello. It holds the papal easel collection, or the paintings that can be moved about. And since the galleries are not on the path that leads to the Sistine Chapel, most visitors don't wander here. Here, you can see Michelangelo's Pity, one of the most famous sculptures. In it, the Virgin Mary holds her dead son in her arms. You can get really close to small details, like the wound between Jesus' ribs, which was made to check if he was dead after crucifixion. Usually, to see if crucifixion victims were dead, they would break their bones, but since they could not break the bones of Jesus Christ, they stabbed him instead. The details in the marble are impressive, and here you can truly see them up close. It's amazing, but it's a copy of the original. In 1972, an Australian backpacker named Laszlo Toth, who thought he was Jesus, attempted to deface the original one, ruining it quite significantly. He entered the museum with a hammer and chisel and began breaking the face of Mary, claiming that he was Jesus and that he had returned. He was stopped a few minutes later, but damaged it quite badly. This masterpiece was restored almost to perfection, but it is now behind a plexiglass in the St. Peter's Basilica. So it's really nice to be able to see this version up close in the Pinacoteca. You will also notice this is one of the few works that Michelangelo signed. Why? Because when he completed it at only 21, people kept confusing him with other artists. So he started signing his work in an effort to establish himself. We'll get to know Michelangelo a little later. The Pinacoteca is one of the few museums here that exhibits pieces in chronological order. You can walk in and see how art changed through the years. In medieval times, around 1100 BC, faces used to be ill-defined and without much form or depth. But as you go on, you can see the proportions start to appear, landscapes with more details, and light and dark come to play. In the Raffaello room of the Pinacoteca, high ceilings and dark wooden walls set the scene. On the walls, huge tapestries embroidered with real gold and silver are protected behind plexiglass. These ancient works of art were made in Brussels from Raffaello's sketches. They date back to 1515 and they are sealed inside temperature-controlled cases because outside temperatures could destroy them. The huge tapestries show scenes from the Bible and the life of Pope Urban VIII and are truly breathtaking when you consider that on average only a single inch of tapestry was completed each day and only during daylight hours so that the color of the thread would never be affected by the difference between sunlight and candlelight. In this room, every piece was made or commissioned by Raffaello, except one, and perhaps the most famous. The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Behind Judas, St. Peter looks ghostly, holding a knife. The moment depicted here is when Jesus declared, one of you is going to betray me. You can see emotions of shock, anger, cowardice, and St. Peter just grabbing a knife ready to kill whoever betrays his beloved Messiah. Throughout the museums, notice the frames. Some are as impressive as the paintings. 
golden frames create intricate forms. Truly beautiful. Also, here is a trick to recognize the protagonist of most of the scenes you will see repeated over and over. When you see someone holding two keys, it is always Saint Peter. Christ gave him the keys of the kingdom of heaven to show him the power of his spirituality. This is a nice little trick to keep in your mind, to help you understand the stories in the paintings. It is interesting to see how everyone is presented here. You can see that these saints are dressed elegantly when alone and more humbly when pictured next to the Pope. No one wants to outshine the Pope. Hi everyone. Circa is recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Museum Rooms One of the first spaces you'll find yourself in is an octagonal courtyard surrounded by eight arches with a fountain in the middle. It may not seem like much to begin with after incredibly high ceilings, abundance of art and the anticipation of what is yet to come. A decent-sized courtyard might seem like something to skim through, but don't. Once named the Statue's Courtyard, Pope Julius II, elected in 1503, had turned this orange tree-filled courtyard into a personal epitome of grandeur. His aim was to bring the beauty and glory of the ancient Caesar's Rome into the new era, the one in which Rome was in the hands of the popes. Pope Julius II also wanted to prove his own power to the world. His predecessor had been pope for less than a month, sure, but the Pope before him, Alexander VI, held immense power. Lust and power-hungry to his core, Pope Alexander VI even acknowledged his illegitimate children and through an incredible web of nepotism elevated his family, the Borgias, to incredible wealth. Essentially, Pope Julius II desired even more power, more wealth and more glory, first for himself and for the church he led. Although he was named Julius the Terrible, we still need to credit him as the founder, so to speak, of the Vatican Museums. It wasn't until the mid-18th century when Pope Clement XIV and Pius VI decided to create a cohesive collection of art and thus a museum that the courtyard became the heart of the Vatican. It would be said that this incredible collection of museums has been a collective effort of all popes, starting from Julius II. And since there are so many museums and countless rooms, there are four things you definitely need to keep an eye out for. Firstly, the Laocoon sculpture, a phenomenal work of art dated back to roughly 30-40 BC. This is a Greek representation of Laocoon, the Trojan priest of the god Apollo, who had warned the Trojans not to allow the wooden horse into their city. Legend has it that Athena and Poseidon, who instead favored the Greeks, or in Poseidon's case, had beef with Lacunt, sent two monstrous serpents to stop the man and his two sons from successfully saving the Trojans. Tragic, really, but not if you were Roman. From the Romans' perspective, this tragedy was nothing but a success, as it allowed Aeneas to flee and thus, through his descendants Romulus and Ramus, found Rome. Take your time to look at it from all angles, Enjoy the perspective and the smoothness with which its chaotic and tragic energy seeps. And then, 
there is Apollo del Belvedere, dated to the second century AD, a time when the Romans had now conquered ancient Greece. It is considered to be one of the most impressive representations of ancient art to have survived the test of time, both for its proportions and for its stunning beauty. It is also thought to be an entirely Roman creation. It is easy to spot. Look for a cloak of marble that could very well be silk. My personal favorite, and the one Michelangelo as well as Raffaello apparently fawned over, is Il Torso del Belvedere. Sculpted by the Athenian Apollonio in the first century AD, it is essentially a mutilated marble bust with the most impressive abs ever. The sculpted bust holds a significant importance in the studying of ancient Greek art and in its influence in the modern age. Upon the rediscovery of the statue back in the 16th century and placing it in the Octagon courtyard, Pope Julius II had asked Michelangelo to fix the sculpture by recreating its head and limbs. Michelangelo was so in awe of the statue and of its perfection that he vehemently refused to touch it. He later used it as inspiration and as a model for many of his works, including many representations in the Sistine Chapel. Napoleon was also smitten with the bust, so much so that he took it to Paris in 1798, after the storming of Bastille. It was finally brought back to its rightful place at the beginning of the 19th century, and is waiting there for you to see it. One of the most impressive and certainly unique things to see in the Vatican is the deep red labrum. This 10-meter-wide saucer on pedestal legs is found in the round hole and is made of one of the most rare materials on Earth. Lapis porphyritis is from Egypt, specifically from the Red Sea area. It was bought by Pope Clement VI in 1717, transported God knows on which poor slaves back to the Vatican, and initially exhibited in the statue's courtyard. It sits on the most glorious legs, entirely made out of bronze and shaped like the heads of lions. Look beneath it as well. The flooring in the room is spectacular and tells the stories of centaurs and sea creatures dating back to the third century AD, with Medusa's giant head reigning supreme at its center. Possibly Raphael's most famous work and one of the Vatican's most important pieces of art the School of Athens, an enormous fresco in a room with four impressive panels. It was commissioned by Pope Julius II to decorate his new apartments in the early 1500s. It is a familial scene, in which its protagonists either engage with other occupants or seem immersed into their own thoughts. And it's full of story and character. Definitely a work of art you can get lost in. The colors are classic Raphael, his signature pinks, and the myriad of different expressions. The School of Athens is about the search for rationality and the various arts of the mind. Grammar, arithmetic, music, geometry, astronomy, rhetoric, and dialect. But keep an eye out for a couple of characters, who Raffaello wanted to celebrate by placing in his painting depicting the intellectual world. Slightly off-center to the left is a lonely figure, hunched over a short desk looking down in a pensive way. That's Eraclito, famously a pessimist. Raphael painted him using Michelangelo as inspiration, characterized by his knee-high leather boots, which apparently he was famous for not taking off. Ever. Even when he went to sleep. Legend has it that whenever he eventually did take them off, which was once every few months, his skin would peel off along with them. Blah. In the center, slightly above Michelangelo, are Plato and Aristotle, deep in a conversation. On the right, the mathematician Euclid. The dude lying down on the steps? Diogenes, the famous philosopher cynic. And the guy who looks directly at you through the painting far right is Raffaello himself. The School of Athens is considered Raphael's masterpiece and has been held up as the embodiment of the Renaissance period. 
As you continue winding your way through the Vatican rooms, you'll enter a long corridor with an arched golden ceiling. This is the Gallery of Maps. This is a corridor of insanity. It's not just the gold leaf ceilings hitting your eyes like rays of sun or the blues and greens racing off the walls and engulfing you. It's the work that lies behind it that's truly mind-boggling. Commissioned by Pope Gregory XIII in 1580 to enrich the Vatican further, the Gallery of Maps is perhaps the area that most expresses the abundance of wealth, power and intellect that was the Renaissance-era Vatican. Friar and geographer Ignazio Danti spent three years painting the 40 panels that depict the entire Italian peninsula. How many years he spent researching them, God even knows. We're entering nerd territory here. Precise, strict calculation and years of research just to know what you're going to paint. It's easy nowadays to forget the Herculean effort scientists and scholars had to make in order to delineate the country's borders to understand where the sea began and where the peninsula ended. Considering it was completed in 1583, very much pre-satellite and drone, it's honestly impressive that these maps are about 80% correct. It is possibly the largest frescoed geographical representation ever created. The Pope was a smart man after all. What better way to show off or boast Italy's power than to commission such a vast and intricate representation of its borders and lands? The gallery has a logic to it as well. The frescoes aren't placed without purpose. Much like the actual peninsula, one wall focuses on the areas facing the east coast, whilst the other faces the west. Take your time and bask in the details in each map on the borders, roads and towns drawn as if they were magical lands. And then, the ceilings. These spectacular decorations were made by a variety of artists, including Dante's brother Antonio. Take a stroll down this gallery and see the rest of Italy without having to travel. Just as Pope Gregory wanted when he commissioned it. old loner and the young party animal. If there are two artists that the Vatican owes most of its prestige to, they are Raffaello and Michelangelo. They both worked in the Vatican at the same time and developed a Tupac versus Biggie kind of beef. One was an old bitter man, and the other a young man adored by many and who loved to drink and have sex. Michelangelo Buonarroti was born in Tuscany but completed most of his famous work in Rome because Pope Julius II commissioned most of his work. He lived 88 years, and for most of those years he was bitter. He was eccentric and sometimes overbearing. We know he was famous for challenging the popes who hired him. Privately, though, he had another side to him. He was a loner, married to his job, who didn't really allow himself to enjoy life. He rarely washed and worked like a madman. Art, poetry and sculpture provided all the romantic, pleasurable escape he needed. Despite being a genius, his bitterness might have been hiding envy and suffering. People who annoyed him would end up being painted in demeaning ways in his work. When Cardinal Biagio da Cesena protested the nudity portrayed in the frescoes of the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo sought revenge the Renaissance way. He painted him as Minos, the king of Crete, with donkey ears and his genitals being bitten by a snake. A Renaissance way of telling someone to go F themselves. Make sure to ask your guide when you're there and they will show you. Michelangelo created figurative works that focused on balance, harmony and the ideal form. He left the world masterpieces like the David, an icon of the Italian Renaissance. The Last Judgment of the Sistine Chapel makes you feel like you're inside of the painting and soon will know whether you go to hell or heaven. He was never tender with anyone. He considered Leonardo da Vinci an effeminate courtier who wanted to take care of everything and could not succeed in anything. Michelangelo was, in truth, kind of mean. 
In the years he was painting the Sistine Chapel, another well-known artist was working on the interior of the St. Peter's Cathedral. Raffaello Sanzio. An entirely different character. Raphael loved to party, to drink, he slept with everyone and surrounded himself with men and women who adored him. As the story goes, one day, Raffaello was passing through St. Peter's Square with his swarm of adoring students, when Michelangelo, who couldn't stand him, called out with contempt. You look like a captain with his crew. And Raffaello responded, you instead are always alone like a hangman. The truth is, however, that Raffaello actually really admired Michelangelo. When Michelangelo unveiled the first half of the Sistine Chapel, it changed the game. Everyone saw that Michelangelo was not simply a painter, but had capabilities of perspective beyond what was considered possible at the time. Raffaello was painting the School of Athens at the time. After seeing the Sistine Chapel, Raffaello actually chipped away part of his painting and replaced it with a figure representing Michelangelo's sketching on a marble table, clad in his famous boots. The two may have been different, but, along with Leonardo da Vinci, the influence they had on Renaissance art cannot be underestimated. Michelangelo would die alone, and very rich. Raphael's cause of death is up for debate, but some believe it was due to exhaustion from um, romantic pursuits. The corridors you walk in may be filled with people today, but it is important to imagine when they were filled with artistic fervor and a life that kept on going. The Sistine Chapel. Patience, perseverance, sacrifice. All roads in the Vatican museums lead to the Sistine Chapel. When you enter, silence befalls. Not only because people are literally stunned by it, but because this is a church, and out of respect, you do not talk. It is funny to see adults, old people, children, all looking up at the ceiling. Remember the massage I told you about? Here's why you book it. As you stare up at the 40-meter-high ceiling, you will hear Silencio, silence, no photos, no videos. This is the boring job of the Sistine Chapel guards. Why no photos? Well, so a Japanese TV corporation paid for the restoration of the Sistine Chapel back in the late 80s, an incredibly costly feat. In return, they obtained exclusive photographic, film, and television rights for 30 years. Also, the flash might ruin the frescoes. It is kind of fascinating, though, in a world of Instagram frenzy, to know that you are here to be truly present and not to boast about your experience on social media. This work took the life out of Michelangelo. He almost went blind from all the paint falling on his eyes as he painted lying down on his back beneath the ceiling. He was a sculptor and had never tried to paint frescoes. This was totally new for him. Luckily, his experience in sculpting had taught him patience. Pope Julius II had high expectations when he commissioned Michelangelo. The previous pope had commissioned the paintings of the Sistine Chapel, and he wanted to obscure everything the past pope had done and he insisted that the Sistine Chapel had to evoke brightness. And my God, if it does. Michelangelo's work changed Western art forever and influenced paintings to this day. Imagine 5,000 feet of frescoes. The image that most people associate with the Sistine Chapel is the fresco entitled The Creation of Man, which depicts God giving life to Adam, and it is part of the main panels in the center. But there are so many works here, depicting biblical stories and scenes. You really will crick your neck taking it all in. Many think that Michelangelo did all of this work alone, but it is not true. He needed helpers to mix his paints and bring them up to him as he painted. 
Although, Michelangelo would actually hire and fire his helpers regularly to make sure they could never claim credit for having put their hand on any part of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. The chapel is also the location of the papal conclaves, when bishops gather together to elect a new pope. The cardinals are locked away inside the Vatican, a secret process which can take days, and in past centuries has taken weeks or months. When a pope dies, incense and wood burned from the chapel sends black smoke into the air. Thousands gather in St. Peter's Square to await the moment when the smoke changes. Traditionally, when a new pope is chosen, wet straw would be burned to color the smoke white. You can still see the burn marks on the floor. It is a strange feeling to be marveling at the beauty of this place and know that such important decisions were made where you stand. Modern art and gardens. By now, you will have walked for three hours and turned your neck in every direction. You're probably tired and need some time to process the ostentatious beauty you have just witnessed. But you can't get out, not yet at least, because in front of you awaits a collection of incredible pieces of art from Francis Bacon to Pablo Picasso. Follow the path and enter the modern art collection. This was an incredible surprise for me to find one of my favorite Salvador Dali paintings. The painting is called Soft Monster in Angelic Landscape. It has a holiness to it, and the perspective Dali achieves is mesmerizing. In a golden landscape, closest to you is a kidney lying on a piece of concrete. Just next to it, an angel that looks a lot like a yellow avatar character with wings. It's caressing a horse. In the background, five angels dance, and you can almost hear the music. It is truly stunning to end the Vatican Museum tour with some modern art and sculpture. After being absorbed in a past that has left its mark so strongly on this city, you are kind of welcome to the real world through this collection. That's the story this piece of the Vatican tells. If you decide to exit from here, don't miss the snail staircase. Designed by Giuseppe Momo in 1932, it has two intertwined stairways that curve in a double helix. One of the staircases goes up, while the other leads down. Thus, when you're entering one of the stairs, you will see people going the other way, but you will never meet. A fun little thing to do is to get close to the walls and whisper things like, I see you. God is judging you. The sound travels all the way down the stairs, so you will see other tourists confused as to where the sound is coming from. I love a good old laugh after being serious for so long. When you finish the inner tour, you're let out into the pine courtyard. The courtyard is named after the huge bronze statue shaped like a pine cone. The metal sculpture was originally part of a fountain dating back to the second century AD and was crafted during ancient Roman times. You can take a break here and enjoy the sunshine or sit on a bench and eat the snacks you brought. If you don't want to spend that much time inside the museum, I suggest a Vatican Gardens tour, which includes a visit to the Sistine Chapel, but skips the museums. You can book an authorized tour from the website. There are usually three per day and in various languages. The schedule changes, so please make sure you check it. Also located in this area are the Vatican Grottoes, which house the tombs of all the popes. This tour feels quite exclusive, as the gardens are close to the general public, so it can be a nice perk. Religion and Rome have walked these cobblestone streets for thousands of years, resulting in murders, weddings, paintings and incredible works of art. With times moving forward, some of the traditions brought by the Vatican remain behind and obsolete, but the power of this entity is too strong to ever be ignored. 
It is part of the history of our city and deeply intertwined with it. Rome itself is like this, a church with open ceilings and no doors. It is a mosaic-style floor tiled in cobblestones, a cast of characters to paint on the walls, and, most importantly, it is the home to these unique and marvelous wonders. Romans remain curious to know how the future of Rome and the Vatican look like in an ever-progressing world. For now, we wait and enjoy the beauty. Thanks for listening to our Vatican episode for Rome. Now that we've enticed you into this intricate web of paintings and mysteries, remember to check the other Rome episodes in this guide for deeper dives into food, film, art, and more. Whether you're heading to Rome right now, sometime in the future, or would just like to learn all about a place we truly love, you'll get instant access to the full guide, plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or download the Circa app. Where you can also get pictures and maps and notes on everything in this episode and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides from Barcelona, London, New York, LA, and many, many more. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.